Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmer's Day, February 8th, 2021. Happy birthday to my niece, Gigi. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim gives us the second part of the history of Disney's Vero Beach Resort. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that a lot of fights in the Old West could have been avoided just by making the towns big enough for everyone. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? This town ain't big enough for the two of us. <laughs> just 18th century America. Now we jump ahead to 2021 and it's Nancy and I fighting for over who gets to put their elbow on the centerpiece in the front seat. <laughs> this car ain't big enough for the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that explains the popularity of SUVs. Everyone gets a little bit of... Well, we have an SUV, but she still ends up strapping me to the front of the car. <laughs> I do my dead deer impression. It shocks the neighbors. So. <laughs> it's fine. You're lowering the property values all, all over. I'm sure it's great. <laughs> Somebody has to do it, Len. Somebody has to do it. All right, Jim. Let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thank you all. Uh, and thanks to new subscribers, Avon9, Jonesy58, Karen and Rex, and DK Jordan. And longtime subscribers, Disney Mom 85, Wayne the Explorer, TM, and Yankee Fan 1928. Jim, these are the culinary geniuses that came up with the cookies and cream recipe for Be Our Guest's famous gray stuff dessert. I'm told that among the other French-inspired ingredients they tried were lemon, caramel, and Pantone Cool Gray 3C. <laughs> <laughs> You know how when that arrives at the table, it actually arrives with a label that says the gray stuff? Yeah. That's because when they initially brought it out, nobody would touch it. Yeah, I mean, it comes in a small ramekin. It's gray. It looks whipped, but you're like, is this a mayonnaise? Is this a is this a condiment that I put on something else? Yeah, what is it? Yeah. Well, that was the thing that the server was told to say, try the gray stuff. It's delicious because that's the lyric. But again, it's a loud restaurant. People yeah. are distracted. And so eventually they had to literally put a label on it. The gray stuff. <laughs> like, get it? Beauty and the Beast? Be our guest? It's like, oh, okay, I'll have it now. But the in the, in the movie, the gray stuff is... With the main courses, right? It's not a dessert. That's it, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, it was just, again, the flavor lab, it's like, they want us to make the gray stuff. You know, where dessert, yeah. are we Are we supposed to insert this? So. Yeah. Eh, all right. Well, it's a, it, it, there's, a whole, there's a whole discussion there about what the gray stuff could have been. Yep, yep. All right. But Jim, let's move on to the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, Book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, not a lot of news out of the uh, the parks this week. A couple of interesting things, though. Uh, a few attractions reopened in the last couple of days. Tom Sawyer Island is back open with a shiny new paint job and some new rock work. And that looks good. Mm -hmm. And the Liberty Square Riverboat is once again sailing the rivers of America. Has anybody from Touring Plans done that with... I am assuming the social distancing protocols in place? Or? I've done it. It's, uh, I mean, well, the thing is, it, the, the, there's not a lot of people going on it anyway because of park capacity. Got it. So it's not a whole lot different than it uh, than it was. It uh, mm -hmm. It is nicer to go on in the fall and the spring, though, I got to tell you. Because, you know, you're sitting out on that sun deck and it's it's basically like, you know, sitting on the surface of the sun in the summer. <laughs> this is true. Does anyone smell bacon <laughs> or is it, oh, no, it's me. Never mind. <laughs> no, 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 just, you bring bread, you bring cheese. And by the time you return to the dock, toasted cheese. <laughs> It's really warm out there. Yeah, super yep. interesting. Mm -hmm. All right, Jim, on to uh, listener questions then. Uh, Hugh writes in with a correction. Uh, he says, uh, here's a bit of fact-checking from a London listener for you, apropos of your podcast last week. 
Because we're British, the research vessel you mentioned last week, which the great British public elected to name Bodie McBoatface, was eventually christened the RRS Sir David Attenborough. As you may know, David Attenborough pretty much outranks the Queen in Brit's affections. But because we're British, they did end up naming one of the robotic submarine vessels on board Bodie McBoatface after all. So I actually did know that. <laughs> well, uh, and I forgot oh. it for the show. Okay, but I love they named it after Sir David Attenborough. Beloved broadcaster, nature historian. I mean, I get it. I, I get it why it would be him than the Queen. But, you know. <laughs> of course. And I think the corgis are somewhere in between. Yeah, the, the corgis are super cute. So, yeah, why okay. they always go with All the dogs. Right. Uh, our listener, Paul, sent in a Disney survey ostensibly about credit cards, but that contained these two questions. Jim, I'd like your input on them. First question was, uh, would like to get your opinion of some entertainment brands using the scale below, which is poor, fair, good, very good, excellent, or I'm not familiar enough to rate it. Please indicate your overall opinion of each of the following brands. So the first one is DC Comics, then Lego, Marvel, Star Wars, Warner Brothers, National Geographic, Pixar, Disney, and Universal. So I understand having all the Disney brands in the Disney survey. And I'm not sure whether National Geographic falls in there. But Jim, DC Comics and Warner Brothers? you got to remember, those two are inextricably linked. And Disney, which owns Marvel, is sort of looking over at the fence at Warner's getting very aggressive with DC. I mean, you know, that there's a ridiculous number of properties being prepared. I mean, just in, in the past week or so, for example, we got news about Leica, the folks who do those all those wonderful stop motion films, and mm. they're supposedly working on a Batman project. We also have Zack Snyder's Justice League being prepped to launch out of HBO Max as a four hour long film. Four hour long film? Four hour long film. This is his cut of the Justice League movie that I want to say arrived in theaters two years ago, three years ago. <sighs> and this is the expanded version. I said, hang on, I still have stuff in my trunk. I, I forgot to put it in the movie. <laughs> exactly. I think, I think I got some stuff here on my iPhone. Let me, let me upload this. <laughs> Disney does view itself as a much larger ecosystem and is constantly keeping tabs on, okay, what's the competition up to? And if Disney didn't do that, we wouldn't have gotten a Galaxy's Edge because that's Disney's response to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. That's true. It's a good point. Yeah. And just this week, Disney folks are over in Japan, uh, you know, eyeballing Super Nintendo World, which is in the middle of its soft opening. Just sort of evaluating, do we have to respond to this one too? Oh, you think for, uh, for Tokyo, you mean? Remember, that one is already under construction at Universal Studios Hollywood and supposedly has already been designated to be an entire land as part of Epic Universe, which is, again, the project that that Comcast halted, but, you know, is is still going to go forward. Yeah, it'll still go forward, yeah. So Uh, here's a comment and a question from Nikki. Uh, Hi, Lynn and Jim. I love the Disney Dish podcast. I have a comment regarding Disney getting rid of extra magic hours and replacing it with a half hour before rope drop. Uh, you've mentioned in a couple of episodes that this change is a huge advantage to staying on site and a huge disadvantage to staying off site. And yeah, that's true. Uh, I'd like to offer a counter opinion. My family's from California. I've got two teens and a husband who all think getting up early on vacation is inhuman. Even when the kids were little, they were not morning, morning people. In all the years we've done Disney trips, even to Disneyland, we've only made one rope drop in Walt Disney World and two in Disneyland. We prefer the strategy of staying late and waiting for people to go home than hit everything we can during the evening hours, and especially evening extra magic hours. So the loss of nighttime extra magic hours for us is a huge blow. 
This plus all the other perks they've cut uh, have me thinking about changing our on-site reservations to off-site. One possible enticement to staying on-site might be the Skyliner on New Year's Eve. Do you have any information on what lines look like from Epcot to Pop Century after the fireworks? We usually stay. We want to know whether the Skyliner is that much more efficient so that it's worth staying on-site for New Year's Eve. Okay, so uh, let's take the, the first point about evening extra magic hours going away. This is actually a, a great point. Um, and the reason is, Jim, that more people used evening extra magic hours than morning extra magic hours, right? So for Disney Resort guests, staying in the park uh, two extra hours was a bigger benefit to them than one hour in the morning. And that makes sense, right? Because as Nikki says, you know, it's, it, a lot of people prefer to, to get up later in the morning and stay up later. Have you heard actually why the evening version of Extra Magic Hours got pulled back? If I had to guess, I'd say they're just going to they're going to do more after hours events, which are paid ticket options. That's true. But you also have to remember in this age of reducing headcount and cutting staff and that sort of thing, the hard reality of making cuts on third shift, you know, the folks who actually have to maintain the parks was like, if you lower the number of people who are actually getting this park open ready for the next day, that's then going to impact the number of nights that this park is available to guests to sell these after hour events. So we're in this situation where, because they chose to, to make what they felt were necessary staff cuts to third shift for her maintenance. And now the option of selling extra magic hours, you know, at night or the, the hard ticket events after the park closes, they have a hard close. It's like, look, you have to have this park closed by this time to have that for us to have it reset to open it at seven or eight o'clock the following morning. All right. So that's, that's why that follows. And I guess if they're going to do an evening extra magic hour event, sorry, not even extra, but an after hours event, the income from the after hours event will help pay for the extra custodial and maintenance stuff that has to happen. Okay. So that makes, that, that makes sense. It's maddening now because there were so many short-term decisions that are having long-term ramifications. Yep. Yep. It's going to be exciting uh, uh, to work at Disney right now because when something gets cut, you know, you can sort of anticipate what the obvious ramifications are, but the secondary effects, which you don't see coming. I mean, every day, every day, you know, walking into the offices in Burbank in celebration or, you know, your virtual office or whatever, you know, it's going to be like, (laughs) let's open up our email and see what happened yesterday. (laughs) See what I'm working on today. It's going to be great. You know how they have the hand sanitizer thing? You come in the door and you, you hit it and get you to your sand. Yeah. In the lobby of the Frank Wills building, right next to the hand sanitizer is a dispenser of antacids. <laughs> <laughs> Here's your problem of the day. Work on this. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Before I go upstairs and find out what the latest problem is. So. All right. So Nikki's uh, second question, though, was about uh, staying on site for New Year's Eve and the Skyliner. Mm-hmm. So let me just say uh, I'm a huge proponent of staying on site for New Year's Eve, especially when we start to return to, you know, quote, normal level crowds. Getting out of like the Magic Kingdom on New Year's Eve can take a couple of hours simply because of the traffic. And, the, uh, and it depends a little bit about the, time, about the time you leave. But it took us one time three hours to get back from Pop, you know, driving or taking a bus um, mm-hmm. from the Magic Kingdom. So I'm a huge proponent of staying within walking distance of whatever park you're going to spend New Year's Eve in. In that case, you know, you could do the Skyliner from Epcot to Pop after the fireworks. I would anticipate that line, depending on when you were leaving, to be an hour or so to get on the Skyliner. And so for that reason, Nikki, uh, if you're going to stay on site and you're planning on Epcot for your resort, I would pick an Epcot resort. Something, uh, you know, Swan, Dolphin, if you've got uh, Marriott or Starwood Points uh, or, you know, Boardwalk Beach Club, um, Yacht Club. 
But even then, even when you're that close, you know, you have to resign yourself to given the size of the crowds and, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, it's, it's kind of a Times Square experience. You're going yeah. because you want to be in a crowd, because you want to experience yeah. what a, this large group of people does, you know, at, at this sort of event. All right. We have a question from Jason uh, and he writes in and says, uh, I need an opinion. I've got a new home office and I'm looking to put up some decor. I've decided that I want to put up framed park maps. The question is, which parks do I put up and from what years should I try to get the maps from? Uh, so this is a chance, Jim, to plug the fabulous Maps of the Disney Parks book, which mm -hmm. if you guys don't have it, you should totally go out onto Amazon and get it because it's amazing. So I flipped through uh, I flipped through this really, really quick. And uh, here are my, my three choices, Jim, you can weigh in on this. Uh, the first thing I think you should get is the Disneyland Park Fun Map from Sam McKim uh, in 1958. This is the map that detailed every single thing in the park, all the shops, uh, all the rides, everything else. Uh, everything is named, including Edison Square and Liberty Street, which never got built. Very true. So Very that's true. why I like that particular map. Excellent choice. The, uh, the next one I like um, is also Disneyland. This is uh, Herb Ryman circa 1956. It's the Explorer's Map of Tom Sawyer Island. And the reason why I like this is it's the first super detailed map of Tom Sawyer Island showing you what uh, every every plaything and every feature in it uh, was supposed to be. Yeah, I know you're about to mention that Herbie Ryman actually drew this thing, but it, this is the map that Walt himself designed the layout of the island, pointed out where things were going to go. Through. This is it's one, one step removed from Walt himself. Right. So that makes it a very, very cool collectible. Yeah, uh, and they did a number of uh, versions of this over the years, but this is the first one, and it sort of set the visual standard for the maps of Tom Sawyer Island. The third one that I would suggest is the Epcot Center Fun Map circa 1985, which has these uh, these really great pastel colors from Epcot, but it also includes all of the classic opening attractions. So Horizons is in there. I don't think the Norway Pavilion is in there, but- No, but Africa is. But Africa's Africa is, there. exactly. So. Uh, Justin sent in a Disney survey about uh, asking about where he stayed during his trip and how he got around, and this is interesting. So. First question is, uh, please tell us a little bit about your trip to Walt Disney World. Where did you stay during your most recent visit to the southern central Florida, Orlando, Kissimmee area? So Walt Disney World, Disney Springs, Shades of Green, Walt Disney World, Swan or Dolphin, uh, other non-Disney hotel or campground, timeshare, rental home, own home, and so on. The next question, though, and I think, Jim, this is related to the uh, announcement of Magical Express. What was your primary means of transportation to the central Florida area? So air, auto, train, charter, tour, or private bus, scheduled bus, RV, or camper. And then the next two questions, did you rent a car uh, during your visit? And where else did you visit in your greater central Florida area time? Uh, so it lists, obviously, the Disney parks, but also Universal, both car parks, uh, SeaWorld, Legoland and Bush Gardens. So I think the last two questions, Jim, they're trying to figure out how much business they're losing to other things, right? What's interesting is the the question that's not asked here about Uber or Lyft. Right. Yeah. There wasn't a. There wasn't a. How did uh, you know? How did you get around? Did you have a unicycle? Did you have a magic carpet? You know, if you didn't have a rental car and you went to these other places, how did you get there? I wonder if that was a. Uh, I wonder if they would have asked that question. Um, so if they would have asked that question, if Justin had said, no, I didn't rent a car, which that was his answer, but also mm -hmm. that he visited offsite things. 
I get that. I get mm. that. Did you see where the minivans are now being sold by a third party that I forget where the car dealership is that wound up with a good chunk of them? Really? Yeah. Somebody has a whole bunch of them sitting in a what looks like a warehouse. I don't know if they, they are being ordered by Disney. And oh, by the way, paint those. Yeah, I was going to say, because if you're an enterprising Lyft driver and you wanted to get some work around Walt Disney World. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> buy one of those. I think they they wound up pretty much in the same territory as all of those thermal detonator, you know, Coca Cola bottles that oh, you know, yeah, were yeah. supposed to be sold in Galaxy's Edge that ended up in the Carolinas. So. <laughs> it's true. All right, Jim. Uh, here was an interesting letter. It was from uh, Rebecca, who writes in: "Great to hear Seth Kubersky on the podcast. A few years ago, we were eating at Sunshine Seasons, and we looked over, and Seth." was eating a late lunch with Salman Rushdie. And Jim, let me just pause here and say, kids, this is why I don't do drugs, because my reality is so strange, I don't need them, right? Rebecca says, it felt very out of body and slightly Seinfeld-esque. So just to be sure, I asked Seth about unofficial guides, and then I asked Salman about his ex-wife, Padma Lakshmi. Okay, that's, that's not what I would have gone with on my questions to Salman Rushdie. But uh, anyway, uh, Rebecca writes, it's not my proudest moment, but it was quite memorable. Seth was very friendly. Salman was, as one might expect, after being questioned about his former spouse <laughs> and not about his achievements. Yeah, always, you know, I like to find a, a good icebreaker, Rebecca, yeah. is to ask someone about their about their exes. Yeah, that's There you go. Good. That works beautifully. And then Rebecca, Rebecca actually included the selfie itself, where she said, attaches my selfie to uh, attempt to covertly capture the two esteemed authors. Again, this was not my proudest moment. And sure enough, it's Seth Kuberski and Salman Rushdie <laughs> in Epcot eating lunch. So I, I asked Seth about this. I'm like, I sent him the phone. I'm like, Seth, yep. what? <laughs> like a question mark. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he said, uh, you know, it was his like cousin's friend. Uh, Salman is like a, a friend of his cousins. And mm -hmm. he was stuck in town, I guess, during a, during a snowstorm where he couldn't get out. And wanted someone to show him around uh, Orlando for a couple of days, so Seth volunteered. So he said he uh, Seth, you know, took him through through Epcot, and someone Rusty really liked the American Adventure, Soren, and Spaceship Earth, which is kind of great. No, that that is that that kind of. But at the same time, I just it's one of these things where it's like, okay, so you know, you and I just talked with Seth on the show, and he hung out with Salman Rushdie, and it's yeah. one of these things is not like the other land. Th that's what I said. You know, like Seth and, and Salman Rushdie. Yeah, of course, those are the two people like. I mean, they're right next to each other in my in my cell phone contacts. Okay. Okay. Good lord. Yep. All right, folks. When we uh, come back, uh, Jim's going to give us the second half, the history of Disney's Vero Beach Resort. We'll be right back. All right, Jim, last week, two weeks ago, mm -hmm. you had given us the beginning of the story of Disney's Vero Beach Resort. Do you want to pick that up? Before we get started, a quick correction. Uh, Matt Roseboom, the editor-publisher of Attractions Magazine, uh, he wrote to us on January 25th, to, while he enjoyed the most recent episode, went on to say that you don't take Alligator Alley to go from Orlando to Vero Beach. That runs from Naples to Fort Lauderdale, which, which makes me ask that, and what is the name of the two-lane road that runs just above a water level, or at least it did back in the 1990s? Is it A1A? I don't know. I, I mean, I've I been on the road. So it, okay. uh, we used to take the road to go to concerts when I was growing up mm. in Florida. And I have memorable, creepy experiences 
you know, on that road. When Nate and I went over to Vero Beach, this would have been September of 1999 because we were down there for Super Soap Weekend 4. Wait, Super Soap Weekend 4. Was that the one with Hulk Hogan and The Undertaker? <laughs> Am I thinking of something I, different? I think you might be thinking okay, of something Okay, all right. Sorry, go ahead. Okay. But the whole be careful, you know, close to Florida waterways thing was yeah. very, very much front of mind then because just a few months earlier over at Celebration, they had pulled that rental car out of the retention. Park or- <laughs> All right. So let, let me give you the setup here. So World yeah. Drive goes from Walt Disney World for miles, right? So when you leave Walt Disney World, if you stay on World Drive, mm-hmm. eventually you will end up in the town of Celebration. And early in the town of Celebration, early on in its history, it was just a stop sign and it was a T-stop. So you had to make a left or you had to make a right. And the right goes to Celebration High School, the left mm-hmm. sort of passive apartments and towards downtown. But early on, it was just a stop sign that was not particularly well lit. No. And after no. that, Jim, mm-hmm. is yep. swamp. Also to set this up, you are going 35 miles an hour. Oh, hold on. 35. Because it's 55 or 50 mm-hmm. yep. right before you get into Celebration. And, and it passes over I-4. I, I drive this every day, right? So it, it, no one goes, Jim, no one goes 35 miles an hour. It's just, no, it's, it's no. just not done. And so they did eventually put in a wall, which they turned <laughs> into an big, A big giant to... concrete barrier now. You cannot go yeah. through it. You know, and they put up lots and lots of lots of lighting so you can see the T, you can see the stop sign. But prior to this, they'd had six cars go in. Oh, yeah. I, I, I don't doubt it, yeah. And there are alligators in that swamp. I've seen them. Yeah, and, and the, the really sad part of this story is in... November of 98, these three guys from Attleboro, Massachusetts, they go down to Walt Disney World. They actually have a a, a condo over at the Disney Villages. They stock their food, and then they disappear. Nobody can find them. And it's not till eight months later that they finally send a diver into the retention pond, and they find the rental car with the three guys inside of it. And it was only then that celebration, like, all right, fine, we'll put up a wall, we'll put up a light. But this was very, very front of mind driving down a dark road that was right at water level because it's yep. like just and he was you know, never heard from again there you go there you go um all yeah. right anyway okay so we were talking about vera beach and disney vacation club so right. just to regroup here folks michael eisner has become the new head of disney production september mm-hmm. of 84 uh michael has marching orders from new majority shareholders of the disney company sid and lee bass oh after they bought 16 percent of the publicly traded shares that were available of disney uh helped install michael as the new head of Disney. Lee and Sid are now pushing Michael to make far better use of those 40,000 plus acres of land that are available at Walt Disney World, which brings us to the Walt Disney World Futures Conference. Now, if I remember correctly, you actually dug a document out of the Buzz Price archives yep. at the Rosen College of Hospitality that they have their Buzz's archive there. At uh, um, University of Central Florida, yep. Okay, so this was a three-day-long event held March 27th through the 29th in 1985. So what is it? Michael's barely been on the job six months now. But it's it's held upstairs at Epcot's uh, World Motion Pavilion in the General Motors Conference Center. Mm-hmm. This 62-page document is available through Rosen College. Just go into the Buzz Price papers. And so the topic at this conference was, should the resort build more hotels? What should we do? Should we get a convention center? Should we do a residential town? And then finally, timeshares. 
the first three, those were all easy yeses. Yeah, they they uh, the resorts they ended up building include everything from moderates to the Grand Floridian, right? And then the convention center was sort of also an obvious yes. You can go back into the late 80s, early 90s, and when Disney talks about the Yacht and Beach Club and the Dolphin and the Swan, they refer to it as the convention center kingdom. They were you know, trying to pitch like, you really want to bring your events here to Walt Disney World because we have this, um, these amazing brand new convention facilities, which are within walking distance of Epcot Center. And, you know, we've just built a special back door to the place. So, you know, this is where you want to hold your event. But timeshares, timeshares are a different animal because by the mid 1980s, they've gotten kind of a lousy reputation and never mind the startup costs. I mean, Peter Rummel, the then president of Disney Development, revealed in an interview he did with the, the Chicago Tribune that if the company had to build a brand new vacation club in Florida, plus uh, two or three other DVC resorts at other locations around the world, that was <laughs> that was what Disney felt were the bare minimum they needed to get into the timeshare business. They need one on site and then two outside. Startup costs for that land were $300 million. That was what Disney was spending to build Disney MGM at that same time. That's a big ask for Disney during this period right? to get into that market. On the other hand, from the Bass Brothers side of the fence, it's like, look, timeshares, very smart market for them to be moving into. Timeshares uh, sales in 1984 were up 1.5% over uh, 1983, and this was a $1.7 billion business. You know, So it's like, all right, we should be in that space. And that was during a recession, right? Because there was a recession in 83 yep. to 83. Okay. Yep. From the Bass Brothers' point of view, if you looked at the typical timeshare buyer, he's a middle-aged, upper-midcome married couple, two kids. And if you overlay that with, you know, your typical Disney World visitor from the same time period, which was a married couple in the mid-30s with at least one kid and a household income of mid-30s, right? that's a pretty close match. And the reason that people buy a timeshare is they've enjoyed a vacation experience and they're looking to lock in future fun at today's prices. So it's like these people are primed for, you know, a Disney vacation cup sales pitch. But what should a Disney timeshare look like? And this is what sent people at the Walt Disney World Futures Conference right down the rabbit hole. Mm, yeah. Right outside of property are thousands of timeshares that are already built or are under construction. So whatever it is that Disney's building on property has to be radically different, has to be extra special. Which brings us to the Disney Villages concept. What they talked about doing was building this complex of three or four highly themed villages. So the idea was that for one year's family vacation, you could stay, and I swear to God, I'm not making this name up, Fantasy Island. <laughs> I don't know if it involved tattoo. I was say this is the uh, this is the permanent residence of Hervé Villachez. Yeah, there we go, there we go. Uh, but then the very next year, you could go and, and spend your family vacation in Frontier Village. This sort of over the top vacation experience was really, really being talked up within the company in the eighties as kind of a response to we have all of this competition on property. We have to do special stuff. So take for example. What they were talking, and this is outside of the Timeshares project. This project was something Imagineers really, really began to push in the summer of 1988, right after Who Framed Roger Rabbit came out and was a huge hit of the office, a box office. Imagineers toyed with building on the site of where the Persian Hotel was supposed to be built, facing out onto Bay Lake. So this is this would have been north of the Contemporary and east of Tomorrowland, like around where Toontown yep. was. Okay, yep. all right. 
Okay. All right. And this boutique hotel was supposed to give guests the chance to stay in a totally tuned up environment. We're talking hotel rooms that would look like they were straight out of Mickey's Toontown. Uh, big cartoon doorknobs on each of the doors and huge overstuffed chairs and couches like you'd see in the early Technicolor Mickey shorts from the 30s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, other end of the spectrum was the Haunted Hollywood Hotel. We're not talking about the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, though in some iterations of the site plan for this it's this proposed Walt Disney World Resort, the hotel was to have been this long abandoned wing of the Hollywood Tower Hotel. So this uh, is when this is 88, so uh, so MGM is under construction. Yeah, yeah. And but they okay. are looking at phase two and you know, Sunset Boulevard is being proposed, and you know, they're trying to justify the costs. <sighs> They could totally do that. They're working on Euro Disney, and they've just decided to build the Euro Disneyland Hotel over the entrance of that theme park. So it's like, you know, the whole notion of we could build a hotel that's either right at the entrance or, or right next to it. If you would look down at it from above, it would look like, you know, the Haunted Hollywood Hotel and the Tower of Terror were all part of one giant complex, but there would, there would have been some clear delineations or clear separations between the two. But that said... Yes, staying at the Haunted Hollywood uh, Hotel in much the same way that folks who stay at the Grand uh, Californian can backdoor into California Adventure Park. Supposedly, the Haunted Hollywood Hotel would have had a way to secret entrance that would have got you onto Sunset Boulevard. So, you, you know, if you stayed there, you would have been among the first guests. There, I mean, there is a there is sort of a what is it security area on the other side of Cypress Drive behind mm -hmm. Tower of Terror. They they can still do this. This hung on for a long time. I mean, I remember talking with Craig McNair Wilson about the illusions. They, I mean, the idea was you'd go to your room and, you know, you'd be sitting in there, you know, watching television and that sort of thing. And they had figured out how every room was supposed to come with a, you know, sort of a vanity where the, there would have been a hairbrush sitting next to the vanity. And what they had figured out how to do is they had a, a, a magnet set up inside of the vanity top that would slowly begin to in the hairbrush that <laughs> and, you know, just so you would just be sitting there and then suddenly the hairbrush would begin spitting on the vanity all by itself or oh, or a, just beautiful a face would fleetingly appear in the mirror or stuff like that but this is a boutique hotel how many you know how many rooms do you, do you build yeah how many are we going to sell at that price at what prices yeah deep down in the 62 page document there's a section that actually reads the disney version of a timeshare should not take the traditional approach by any stretch of the imagination. These city timeshares will be village-oriented, where each village is a theme, Fantasy Island, Frontier Village, the type, and there will be transferability within the villages. Again, the idea is that you have this annual experience where people have a, a positive experience that will, but again, Peter Rummel is just sort of like, well, how, you know, are we going to build something that potentially is going to cannibalize are on already the regular resorts yeah, yeah yeah yeah. that's it exactly you know that again here's the quote from rumble it's like look clearly this is an opportunity for us but if, we honestly have to ask ourselves if we're going to be selling timeshares are we robbing yourself ourselves of a future resort yes and does it then make any sense to do this are we not just trading dollars around so how do we go from fantasy island to the vero beach resort Len and I will cover that on the third and final installment of this Disney Dish series. That's fantastic. So I, we've never talked about uh, how they came up with the economic arguments for DVC, but that's uh, yeah. I'm looking forward to that. That sounds great. From 2021, looking back to the decision-making process in 1985, 
you're also dealing with a, a Disney company that is still out of the six major studios that are in business in Hollywood at this time, they're dead last. They're six. Yeah. They haven't had a hit film in years. In fact, just this past week, uh, I, I want to say it, it's Freeform that, that's running these, but Nancy was sitting you know, at home and waved me over. It was the very first episode of Golden Girls from September oh. of 1985. And this was one of Disney's very first hits. You know, within a year's time, they got that show up out of the ground. And it was one of these things that signaled to the world that Disney was serious. It was back and it was in the entertainment business and was creating stuff for the largest possible audience. But I, I want I want some Golden Girl fan to reach out and explain, because in the pilot episode, Rose and, and the others, they have a male roommate in the house. And by episode two, he's gone. <laughs> that didn't test well. <laughs> So is that guy buried in the backyard? Did they ever explain what, what happened to him? He was just um, gone. I'm yeah, not gonna go I mean, back and not gonna go back and look at it. I'm I'm sure our listeners know the uh, know the backstory. But if you so if you know it, just uh, write it in. Yeah, please, time. please let us know. So. <laughs> All right, folks, that's gonna do it for the Disney Dish Show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including a second set of ideas that Disney came up with for the Land Pavilion. Back in the 1970s. On next week's show, we're going to finish up the history of Disney's Vero Beach Resort. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. We'll be covering Ravi Shankar's Raga Parmeshwari and other sitar classics at the My Path to Awaken Weekend of Yoga in Nature on Friday, May 28th at Terrapin Hill Farm in beautiful rural Harrodsburg, Kentucky. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.